0: We're reading from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. When the church, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers.
1: Well, hello everyone. It's great to be with you. Uh, Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much that you've gathered us here tonight. We do pray, take away from us, Lord, the distraction of the day, of the week, even of the moment, Lord. So that we might listen to your word and so that we might obey. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'd like you to do something for me, I'd like you to conjure up in your mind the image of the person whom you think is the least likely person in the world to ever become a Christian, the person whom you think is just beyond the reach of this gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's Richard Dawkins, someone like him, a celebrated atheist and author of The God Delusion. Or perhaps you've got a friend or or even a family member who has nothing but scorn and ridicule for Jesus and for those who follow him. Or perhaps you've got someone in your life who once upon a time did know Jesus and did follow him, but now they've turned their back on him, seemingly never to return. Or maybe it's you. Maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking, no, I'm the least likely person I could ever imagine to turn around and become a follower of Jesus. And these last few weeks, we've been asking the question, just how far can this gospel go? Just who can this gospel save? And this week, we'll see that actually, whoever we can think of, whoever we could imagine, however far we think they are away from the gospel. Actually, there is no one that is beyond the power of Jesus to save. Because whoever you're thinking of in your mind just then, I can guarantee you there was one person in all of history who was even less likely to be a Christian. And that's Saul of Tarsus. Saul the Pharisee. Saul the vicious persecutor of the church. Saul the murderer. And yet here we are in Acts chapter 9, and what is it that we're reading about tonight? But how even Saul came to follow Jesus. And in doing so goes from being the gospel's greatest enemy to being one of its greatest champions. And it's completely unexpected, it's completely sudden, there's no hint that this was going to happen. There was no foreshadowing that this was going to happen. No one expects this kind of person to be converted, and that's the only word for it. He was converted completely. Uh, if you or I was writing the Book of Acts, Saul would have been the villain to the very last chapter, uh, you know, plaguing and persecuting the church until Peter managed to drop him off the side of a building after a climactic gunfight. You know, that's the way that I would have, I would have. I even know who I would cast as the Apostle Peter. The rock, of course. (laughs) But these, of course, these are not, these are not written by me and they're not written by you. In fact, they're not even written by the apostle. This book before us, these are the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. His mission to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And very suddenly here in Acts nine, we realize that he has a plan even for his greatest enemy. And so complete is the transformation of Saul the Pharisee into Paul the Apostle, as he's renamed in Acts 13, that the transformation itself becomes a powerful testimony to the truth of the Gospel. And so the author of of Acts, uh, Dr. Luke, he actually believes this conversion is so important that he includes it not once, not twice, but three times in the book of Acts. It's here... But it's also repeated for us again in Acts chapter 22 when Paul is brought before a mob in Jerusalem and then again when Paul testifies before King Agrippa in Acts 26. But on one hand, Paul's conversion is not a typical one. Uh, There are some dramatic events here that certainly didn't happen during my conversion. A flash of light, a voice that addressed him by name, a vision of the, the resurrected and the ruling Lord Jesus... And some of these things are happening because Acts chapter 9 is not just Saul's conversion, it's also his commissioning as the 13th Apostle. And so like the other Apostles, he too must be an eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus, just like the requirements for the other disciples who became Apostles in Acts chapter 1. But these things aren't necessary to conversion, any more than it's necessary to be in that precise spot in the Damascus Road when Saul was converted but there are parts of Saul's conversion that are very typical in fact they have to be there they're always present when anyone is converted and so today I want to talk to you about three things in particular that hopefully oh no were they up already Okay, while they work all that, I want to talk to you about three things in particular that are hopefully appearing on the screen behind me. I want to talk to you about how to be converted, you need to have an encounter with Jesus, you need to surrender to Jesus, and you need to be transformed by Jesus. And it's all up there behind me, but please keep your Bibles open to Acts chapter 9. So firstly then, for anyone to be converted, you must have an encounter with Jesus. And for Saul, this took place on the Damascus Road. Uh, Saul's been mentioned to us on at least three occasions as a bitter opponent of Christ and the Church. He was the one who looked after the coats when Stephen was being stoned. In 8 verse 1, he even approved of Stephen's death. And he began to to ravage the church last week in chapter 8, to to destroy it, to go house to house, full of rage and fury at the followers of Jesus. He began this fierce, systematic persecution of Christians uh, that actually led to the church being scattered out from Jerusalem. And yet we saw last week that the Lord Jesus made persecution serve mission. And the scattering of the church led to an explosion of resurrection life. As those who left Jerusalem, they proclaimed the gospel wherever they went, they evangelized wherever they went. And so the gospel of the Lord Jesus even came to those who were formerly excluded. It came to the Samaritans, it came to the Ethiopian eunuch and they too were saved last week. But here again, now Saul is still breathing out his murderous threats against the followers of Jesus in chapter 9. And so he has to leave Jerusalem in order to pursue them but now he's going armed with letters from the high priest to all of the synagogues. And he begins by heading up to Damascus, about a week's journey to the north of Jerusalem, about 200 kilometres. And it's there on the road to Damascus that suddenly he encounters Jesus. He was near the end of his journey when out of the blue, chapter 9, verse 3, Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul is literally knocked to the ground by his encounter with the risen and the ruling Lord Jesus. And the light that he sees is the glory of Jesus and the voice that he hears is the voice of Jesus. But Saul's response is very interesting in verse 5. He says, who are you, Lord? In other words, Saul doesn't recognise him. Saul doesn't know who he is. And that's very telling because Saul thought that he did know who Jesus was. Saul that he did, thought he did know that Jesus was a dead blasphemer, an imposter whose followers need to be destroyed. And the whole assumption of Paul's life is this assumption about who Jesus is. But when Saul hears the voice reply in verse 5, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Well, Saul realises that the Jesus that he thought he knew, he didn't know at all. In other words, Saul has an idol. He has a Jesus and he has a God who sent Jesus that he is made up, that he has invented, that bears no resemblance at all to the real Jesus. For the real Jesus is just unrecognisable to him. Saul has crafted for himself an idol, not of stone or of wood, but a far more subtle substance, an idol that only exists in his mind. And like all those who do not worship the true and living God, Saul is a slave to his idol. Saul has an understanding of God that's actually quite rigid. Saul believes that God is a strong God who would send a strong Messiah who would save a strong people, those who are strong enough to obey the law and all that it commanded. It never entered into his mind that God somehow might send a weak and suffering Messiah to save a people who are weak and suffering so that they might be saved. And suddenly Saul is thinking, Jesus died accursed, Jesus died abandoned, Jesus died nailed to a cross, cursed by God. But if here is Jesus now, risen and vindicated and victorious, well it must not have been for his own sin that he died. It must have been someone else's sin that he died for. He must have died for them. He must have taken their place. He must have taken their punishment so that he could give them his blessing. And so Saul has this encounter with the real Jesus that knocks him to the ground. And he needed it. He was never going to be converted by the Jesus that he would created in his mind. Because like all the gods of our invention and the idols of our mind, such gods cannot challenge us. Such gods cannot lift us up, they cannot change us and they certainly cannot save us because they are just us. To be saved we need an encounter with the real Jesus and that's what Saul got on the Damascus road. No one is converted without encountering the real Jesus. Which means that as we go out to our friends and to our families and to our our workmates and to our union mates, as we seek to share Jesus with them, as we want them to come and encounter Jesus. There is no place for deeds without words. Deeds with words, yes, but deeds without words, no. Evangelism that's just kind of me hanging around with someone, setting a good example and somehow hoping uh, that they might catch a drift of what we're on about, well, that's not going to do anything, is it? At some point they're going to have to encounter the risen Jesus. Not quite like Saul did, but like everyone else in the book of Acts did. By encountering the testimony of an eyewitness to the risen Jesus. Eyewitnesses like Peter or James or John or any of the Apostles to whom, whose ranks we must now add Saul. In other words, we need to open the Bible with them. We need to share God's Word with our friends and with our family so that they can encounter Jesus in God's Word as recorded by eyewitnesses. We have to take the time to read the Bible to them. We have to take the time to to invite them to see you or to invite them to church or to invite them to read the Bible with us or with friends. We, We have to bring them to the Word of God and to the eyewitness testimony. And we need to pray that God would show them mercy too. That they would encounter Jesus in God's Word. Because the other thing that Saul's encounter with Jesus makes clear is that Jesus is the one taking the initiative here. It's not as if Saul has done anything to earn Jesus' favour. He's currently trying to kill his followers. No, it's Jesus who chose to appear to Saul on that road. Jesus chose Saul long before Saul chose Jesus. And in fact, much later on in Galatians chapter 1 verse 15, an older and a wiser Paul will reflect upon how Jesus actually chose him before he was even born. But no one is converted without encountering the real Jesus. That's point number one. But secondly then, conversion is also going to involve something else. It's always going to involve surrender. Surrendering to Jesus. Surrendering your life to Jesus. Giving in to Jesus and giving all to Jesus. Saying to Jesus, no longer do I rule but now you rule. And he must come to rule every part of our lives, every nook and cranny. But this surrender is not a a violent intrusion into our life that we have when we encounter Jesus. No, no, it, it's it's far it's gentler and yet far deeper than that. We see even though Saul's conversion was dramatic, it wasn't sudden. It actually wasn't as sudden as we think. Things were actually already happening in Saul's life to prepare him to surrender to Jesus. Uh, Even things before Acts chapter 9 and those three days that Saul spent fasting in the darkness. We know that things were happening in Saul's life to prepare him to surrender to Jesus because we know that Jesus said more to Saul on the Damascus road than's recorded for us in Acts 9. Uh, Later on in Acts chapter 26 verse 14 when Saul tells this story again, he, he fills us in on more of the details. He says how Jesus said to him, not just Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? (coughs) He also said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what what does that mean? What's a a goad? Well, a goad is a a cattle prod. A goad is something that you use to, to, to poke cattle, and to poke sheep to make sure that they go in the right direction because sheep and cattle, well, they're, they're stupid animals and they're prone to getting themselves into trouble and into danger. They'll happily walk over a cliff if you don't have something to kind of stop them. So you need uh, you need a goad, you need something to, to send them in the right direction even when they don't want to go that way. And so Jesus said to Saul, you, you are a stupid animal, aren't you? You don't want to go the way that you need to go. You don't want to go the way that I'm pushing you to go. I've been poking you and prodding you and pricking you like an ox to change your mind but you keep resisting. Now what were these goads? What was Jesus doing in Saul's life to point him in the right direction? Well we aren't explicitly told but surely one of them was Stephen back in Acts chapter 7. I wonder if Saul had been mulling over Stephen's speech, so powerful, so wonderful that he had given, that it so incited the Jewish believers to to, to such rage that they had sought to kill him and even stoned him. But I wonder if he'd been mulling over Stephen's speech, looking for flaws and thinking, I thought that we needed a temple, I thought that we needed a law... Have a relationship with God. How could I have overlooked that, that Abraham and Joseph and Moses had no temple and no law, and yet they had a relationship with God and they were blessed by God? And I certainly think that must be part of it because the themes of Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 are so similar to the themes of Paul's theology in his letters. And Saul heard Stephen's sermon and he's the most likely person to have actually repeated it to Luke when Luke wrote the book of Acts. There's plenty of other ones as well. The Old Testament is full of theological puzzles that Saul the Pharisee would have known well. Like the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1 to 39, the Messiah is a strong king. And then in Isaiah chapter 40 to verse 66... The Messiah is a suffering servant who dies for the sin of the people. Now, that must be two different people, mustn't it? Or perhaps Jesus was both of those things. A strong king who willingly died for his people. Or maybe another one, what about the animal sacrifices? More than one of the prophets mulled over how it was possible that the blood of animals could ever take away sin and be a a satisfactory payment for our rebellion against God. (coughs) (coughs) Unless, of course, they were never meant to atone for sin. Unless, of course, they were only ever meant to point the way to the one whose death would atone once and for all for sin. But there's not just theological goads that Saul would have known on as of, there were, there were moral ones as well. Saul was actually a man of very deep conscience. It's easy to paint him as the villain in these chapters, but actually he was a man of very deep conscience. He knew that even though he could claim to be faultless in his external behaviour, like he talks about in Philippians chapter 3 verse 6, he also knew that on the inside... His motives and his desires were not clean in God's sight. And in Romans chapter 7 he acknowledges that in particular it was the 10th commandment that caused him trouble. The 10th commandment, do not covet. Commandments 1 to 9, he could obey by word or by deed. But coveting is neither a word nor a deed, it's an attitude. It's a disposition of the heart. And in Romans chapter 7, he acknowledges that he could not control it and that God's law even seemed to inflame it. And so despite all appearances to the contrary, Saul knew that he was a sinner. He knew that his heart was not right before God. And perhaps even his zeal in persecuting the church was a cover for his deep insecurities before God. No, Paul was an ox, furiously kicking against the goads that Jesus had been sending his way, even if we're not told precisely what they are. Jesus has been pricking Saul's mind and conscience with the goad and now he has revealed himself by light and by voice, not to overwhelm him, not to beat him down, but actually to lift him up so that he might voluntarily surrender to Jesus and therefore, that Jesus might bring to him forgiveness, might bring to him the cleansing of his heart, the cleansing of his conscience that he so desired, might bring him an answer to all of those, those theological conundrums that he must have mulled over day and night. The divine sovereign grace by which Jesus chooses Saul doesn't imprison Saul, it liberates him. It frees him from pride and self righteousness. It enables Saul to repent and to believe and to find freedom from sin and guilt and shame. And it starts off small with him obeying Jesus in verse 6 and, and heading off into Damascus, even accepting Ananias's laying on of hands and baptism, knowing full well that this means he will suffer for the name of Jesus. But by the time we get to verses 17 and 18, when Ananias does lay his hands on him and Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit, it's clear that now the stiff-necked Pharisee has bowed his neck. The ox has surrendered to his master. Saul has surrendered to Jesus, like everyone must, if they will follow Jesus as their king. But thirdly then, every conversion also involves transformation. Encountering Jesus and surrendering to Jesus will always produce a transformed life. (laughs) And Jesus really, it's dramatic in Paul's life, isn't it? Jesus interrupts not just Saul's journey to Damascus, but actually the journey of his whole life, the trajectory of his whole life. It's completely turned around. Jesus does that with everyone who follows him. It's just very clear, it's very obvious in the life of Saul. But just think about even the movement within this chapter. Uh, Saul begins as Saul the persecutor, breathing out his murderous threats against the disciples. In fact, so feared is Saul's name that when Jesus appears to Ananias in verse 10 in a vision and says, go talk to Saul, Ananias is terrified. Uh, At this point, Ananias is kind of really regretting volunteering for the follow-up team at church. He's thinking, I should have joined the music team. That's much safer. Jesus wants me to go and talk to who? And he says, Jesus, you you, you do know who this guy is, don't you? You do know who this fellow is. You do know that he has warrants to arrest and to kill anyone who is a Christian. And you want me to go and announce myself to him? But Ananias does what he's told. He comes to Saul and he lays hand on him, and he calls him brother, he embraces him, and it's a wonderful moment of acceptance. And almost straight away, Saul the persecutor becomes Saul the preacher. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 20. Saul takes some food, he recovers his strength, he maybe gets one night's rest, and then straight away in verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues, that Jesus is the Son of God. There is an immediate transformation. He's gone from being a persecutor to a preacher. And Saul's transformation doesn't end there. Many days later, we're told in verse 23, uh, we begin to realize that actually now Saul, the preacher, will also become Saul, the persecuted. In verse 23, the, the Jews of Damascus plot to kill him and he hears about it and he escapes and flees Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he continues to preach fearlessly, again, so much so that the Jews plot to kill him. And again, he escapes, uh, fleeing to his hometown of Tarsus via Caesarea. From persecutor to preacher and now to persecuted, Saul's life is, is completely transformed. And because of that transformation, there is a transformation in people's attitude towards him. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he he tries to associate with the rest of the church and and with the apostles in verse 26. And initially there, again, they're sceptical of him, they're afraid of him. But it's Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who comes to the rescue. Barnabas takes Saul to the apostles and tells the apostles of this, this real transformation that has gone on. And that Saul has been preaching the gospel in Damascus. And the apostles accept Saul as brother. And the most extraordinary of things has happened. The murderer of Stephen is now a member of the church. And at Saul's transformation, even the church is transformed. The great persecution that it had been experiencing, suddenly it ceases. Uh, Now there is this time, in verse 31, of peace, time to grow, time to expand. Time to be encouraged. There will be peace for the church, but not for Saul. It's almost as if the persecution has moved from the church as a whole and now it is focused and become concentrated in the life of the one who once persecuted them. Now Saul will become like a lightning rod. (coughs) He will become the one who will suffer greatly for the name of Jesus so that the rest of the church might have peace. But the church has been transformed once again. And once more, we are amazed at just how far, just how powerful the gospel is. Because not only have we seen it save those last week who were excluded, those like the Samaritans, those like the Ethiopian eunuch, Now even villains and murderers like Saul can be saved. And this truth brings us great comfort, I think. Great comfort in two ways. Great comfort to us personally. I know that in a room like this, there are some of us here of tender conscience. There are some of us here who are deeply ashamed of the things they have done and of the things that they have left undone. Or even like Saul of the thoughts and the attitudes of their hearts. And I know for those of tender conscience. It can be hard to imagine. That we could ever be acceptable to Jesus. It's hard to imagine that we could ever be clean. That our conscience could ever be silenced. And that we could ever be embraced by Jesus. And to you I want to say this, if God can accept Saul the persecutor, if God can use Saul the persecutor, then God can accept you and God can use you powerfully for his glory. If him, then you. If his sins can be passed over because of the blood of Jesus, then your sins can be passed over because of the blood of Jesus. And this is not just my assessment, it's Saul's own assessment. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Saul talks about how he is the very worst of sinners. And because he is the worst of sinners, he is the best of examples the best example of how Jesus can save anyone. But not only is Acts 9 a great comfort to us personally about our own salvation, Acts 9 is a great comfort to us with those whom we long to be saved. Each one of us have friends, have family, each one of us have people who surround us each and every day who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore they stand condemned. And it's easy for us to imagine that somehow even they might be beyond the gospel's power and yet they are not. John Stott has a wonderful quote about this. He said this in in one of his commentaries. He said, There are many souls of Tarsus in the world today, Like him, they are richly endowed with natural gifts of intellect and character, men and women of personality, energy, initiative and drive, having the courage of their non-Christian convictions, utterly sincere, but sincerely mistaken. Travelling from Jerusalem to Damascus, hard, stubborn, even fanatical in their rejection of Jesus but they are not beyond his sovereign grace. See, the gospel of Jesus is so powerful that even this man Saul has become Jesus' man. And if Saul can be converted and powerfully used by Jesus, then anyone can be converted and anyone can be powerfully used by Jesus. And even those that we might consider the least likely people in the world to be converted. Well, even them, Jesus can save. So don't give up hope and don't stop praying. Let's pray now. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him, because of his death for us, Anyone's sin can be passed over. Anyone can be cleansed. Anyone can be made holy. Anyone can be acceptable in your sight because of Christ Jesus our Lord and his death and resurrection. But Lord, we also thank you for the Apostle Paul, once called Saul. We thank you that in him, We have a a living example of just how powerful this gospel is to save. And just how powerful this gospel is to use each and every one of us for the glory of Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray there are people that we all know, people in our lives that we love dearly. Lord, we even, we name them now before you in our hearts. Lord, they are not beyond your power. They are not beyond conversion. If they too were to encounter Jesus and surrender to Jesus, they too would be transformed by Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that in your grace and in your mercy, you might show them the same mercy that you showed to Saul and that you showed to us And we ask that you might save them. And knowing that your gospel is powerful, Lord, make us bold. Make us bold to speak, Lord. Make us bold to invite. Make us bold to proclaim Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to gossip about Jesus. Make us bold to evangelize our friends, Lord. Knowing that it's risky. Knowing that there's cost. Knowing that we too might be called on to suffer for the name of Jesus but knowing most important of all that the gospel is powerful to save and you are just at work in our world now as you were then calling people to yourself.